Hello. Welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with Black Crow's founder and former drummer, Steve Gorman, on his new memoir, Hard to Handle, as well, the gentleman from Theory of a Dead Man on their new album, Say Nothing. That's all coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKeith. Hi there. Welcome to the show. I have two guests today. A uh, couple of couple of shorter interviews that were shorter just due to time constraints, um, but they're both great musicians. Uh, so that's I guess that's the theme of today is music. Uh, so for years, my first guest played drums in one of the seminal rock bands of the '80s and '90s, the Black Crows, and. After helping to found the band in the mid-80s, Steve Gorman went on to appear on all their records until their breakup in, in 2015. Their first record, Shake Your Moneymaker, was released in 1990 and reached number four on the Billboard 200 chart. Their follow-up, The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, hit number one. The music magazine Melody Maker has labeled them the most rock and roll rock and roll band of all time, and Rolling Stone readers voted them the best new American band in 1990. In total, they have released eight studio albums, five live albums, and four compilations. Since the acrimonious split, Steve Gorman has written a memoir, Hard to Handle, named after one of the band's first singles. This is my conversation with Steve Gorman. Steve Gorman, hello, welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, it's a pleasure, man. I, I'm glad that you answered the phone when I called. Uh, so you you have a new memoir out, um, Hard to Handle, which talks about your time in, in, in The Black Crows. Like so many people who, who write memoirs, my first question is, why now? Why, why was this the right time to release your story? Um, it was, I, I think, I guess, by December 2017, I realized it might be time, and the reason was it had been enough time since my since I realized the band was over, at least for me, and I had processed it all, and I, I found myself at a place where it all made sense. It settled in. I, I knew that my view on what happened, why it happened, how it happened, and how it felt, that wasn't going to change. It was like you know, the final chapter had been written long ago, but I processed it and dealt with it enough and analyzed it, and it just settled into my sort of my mind and in my heart. You know, it's there. It makes sense to me now. It's not going to change. I see it with a clear perspective. Um, it all came into very sharp relief, and and I, you know, I, I was left. Uh, you know, my my view on the Black Crows for the rest of my life will always be filled with gratitude and sadness. You know, those two things will will run concurrently as far as what it was like to be in that band. And, you know, there had been anger and there had been bitterness and there had been confusion and all those things. And that had all dissipated and, and gone away. And I, what was left was, in my opinion, a very clear view of, of what went down. You know, you, you sort of, you, you opened the book about the, the breakup um, in 2013. And 
you know, obviously Chris and, and Rich had decided to end the band then, but could, could you see it that this was something that was a long time coming, that it, it had been brewing for a while? Oh, yeah, the band. I mean, I talk in the book at length about all the various, you know, every cycle of touring, I was questioning, is this the time to leave after the third album? I mean, it was... But, but the thing I don't say in the book, but I, I can say without hesitation, is everybody in the band felt that way. There was It was a constant struggle for everyone to maintain their focus and their and their passion because we were just, it was so dysfunctional. After the, after probably 1995, there were very few times when we were able to stay on the same page for very long. And everybody was looking around and everybody was questioning, you know, whether it was still worth it the whole time. Um, I'm the only one that's written a book where I say that out loud, but, but that was a very common state of, state of mind for everybody in the band, not just the brothers. So, you know, when it when the band ended in two thousand one the first time, you know, the the brothers didn't legally separate, but, you know, Chris had said flat out, I'm I'm done, I'm going to start a solo project and if it works I'm never coming back. You know, and so you know, that's those are pretty you know, that that was that was something everybody thought. And you know, I think if either brother had met had found a level of success they were content with as a solo artist back then, the band would have never reunited. And I think that still holds the truth for right now. You know, I think that if the last seven years, either one of them had found their own way in a way that made sense, then they wouldn't be doing what they're doing this summer. Why do you think that we see so many rock bands or at least rock personalities self-destruct in certain ways? Well, there's a lot to be said for the, you know, a lot of musicians, um, you know, spent their formative years alone in a room with an instrument. I mean, this is a very, very simplistic view, but, you know, an awful lot of guys, you know, their, their guitar or their bass or their drum kit, it's not, it's not like just something they do. It's like their best friend for a long time. It's the only way they can express themselves. It's the one thing they lean on to get through dark times in life and, you know, I didn't start playing drums until much later, but but I listened to albums in that way. Like, music was my refuge from things as an adolescent, as a teenager. And I think that a lot of times you find people who, at 18, 19, and 20, have common interests and, and common goals, and they say, let's start a band together, and they all really care, and it, it means the world to them. And it's very rare that, that if, if something develops for that young band, if they find themselves on a path that might lead to an actual career, it's very rare that they understand how important it is to evolve and grow and mature as individuals. And if they understand that, it's very rare for that to still work within the confines of whatever the band's culture is. Um, I think you've just got a lot of, it's, it's a mix of a lot of things. There's, there's great talent, great ambition, um, lack of social skills, you know, there, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad and a lot of light and a lot of dark. And when it works, you know, there, there's a reason that the number of bands who've made it, you know, past five years is less than 1% of every band that ever got together to play. And even the bands that got a record deal, even the bands that had a hit song, a decade is a bridge too far for 99% of those bands. You know, like a band like U2 or the Rolling Stones, I mean, those are the such wild anomalies they're in our lives we see them all the time they feel like they're omnipresent 
but compared to the number of bands that you know that those guys came out with, I mean, you just look around and realize it's they are the ultra exception to every rule. When I, when I was reading the book and you, and you were describing Chris's antics and personality, the one person that came to mind for me was Jim Morrison. And do you think that it takes a certain personality to, to be a rock star in a way? Um, no, I mean, there's plenty of examples of guys of, of guys with great careers that don't have those same personality traits. I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for the guy in his, as a teenager who says, I'm going to be a front man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing and be elite. I'm going to stand up there without an instrument. I mean, that is, that is not usual. That's the same kid who says, I'll be the pitcher or I'll be the quarterback. You know, there's just something about certain people where they want to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, you know, is, is there uh, uh, Eddie Vedder and Jim Morrison share traits? Probably not too many, you know, um, there's a million examples of all kinds of things, but I do think that what, what guys that do that generally share, if not, if not personality traits, they certainly share, um, an energy, you know, like a vibe, a, a, you know, they're, they're, they're oftentimes the catalyst at the very least for what makes the band unique, you know, and when Mr. Crow's Garden, uh, which was what turned into the Black Crows, you know, when I started playing with Chris and Rich in 1987, I would have never said Chris is a great singer, I wouldn't have said he's a great songwriter, but I thought he was a star, uh, you know, he was a great front man. And he wasn't even, and, and it wasn't even what he was doing, it was what you could just see that there was a lot there. And, you know, great bands all have a certain intent. You know, intent is the thing, you know, that, that all those guys share and, and all and bands share, you know. And, and if, you know, in the case of the Black Rose, that intent, when it was all aligned, when we were all on the same page, you know, we were unstoppable. And then it would just, it just became impossible to ever stay that way. And it was fractured. And, you know, the essence of what made that band great was a, it was a, it was a slow erosion over years. We didn't have an explosion. We just eroded. Uh, but you, you mentioned you initially met the brothers in the '80s, and you started. You met them through another musical project um, that you were in. Do you ever think about how different your life would be if you chose to stay with Mary My Hope? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm still friends with those guys, so it's not like it ever left my my radar entirely to, to, to be in touch with them and follow what they were all doing. Um, I thought about it a lot, you know, and, and I mean, I still, I, I think about, in, in two terms, I think about just what it says about me that I left my, that I left that band when my, my gut instinct was that I shouldn't do that. You know, I had, I was very much at odds with myself when I left that band to join Mr. Crow's Garden. And on a surface level, it's very easy to say, oh, well, that was the right decision, because look at what the Black Crows did. But all of the all of the things that, that the Black Crows, all of the, the weaknesses, I mean, and the Black Crows, you know, as a blanket statement, we were a great rock and roll band. I mean, we made great music, and I'm always proud of that. But in terms of this kind of conversation, and in terms of what it took to make that music, and how much everybody had to put of themselves on the line, I think about what it was like in my other band. And, you know, it's real easy to see what happened to Mary and My Hope. They went off the rails, just like the Black Crows did, but they went off the rails. Drug use and battles and ego and control issues. And, and that, again, that's what happens to 99% of the bands on Earth. You know, they got a record deal before we did. They toured before we ever toured. They had a shot at it in 1989. 
you know, when Mr. Crow's Garden was making Shake Your Moneymaker, Mary My Hope was on the road, like opening for like the Jesus and Mary chain, if I'm not mistaken, or somebody like that. They were out trying to make it happen, and, and it didn't work for them. And I've often thought, well, if I'd been there, you know, I would have been the glue. I would have held it together. And I used to think that. And that's exactly what I thought I was in the Black Crows. And maybe I was for a time. But again, you know, the thing I learned much later in life uh, than a lot of people, I was in my 30s before these things really made sense to me, was, uh, you know, I'm not here to be the glue for somebody else. Like, <laughs> If you need glue, you got a problem. You know, it, bands are all about, it's about respect. It's not about love and friendship. A great band, the most important thing between band members is it's got to be respect. You've got to acknowledge the significance of each other's contributions to the whole. And if you can't do that, you're, you're going to be... You're going to be flying sideways an awful lot, you know. I mean, and that was certainly the case in the Black Rose. Like, I don't know about a band like you know. If you look at any other band, that band diagram, that center circle where everybody's involved. I'm not saying a four-piece band everybody gets 24, 25 percent, or in a five-piece band they all have 20 percent. It doesn't matter who has the highest percentage. What matters is that if somebody has more than everyone else, at least that somebody has to acknowledge and respect what the other people give. In sports terms. If you have a quarterback who doesn't think he needs an offensive line, that's not going to go well. So you, you know, obviously your quarterback, you could say, is more important. But again, in a band, it's all about chemistry and it's all about the it's the collective, it's the whole that makes it work. And it's you know, just like in basketball, it's how well everybody plays together that can fuel success. And it's one person not understanding that that can derail the other four very easily. You know, just on another note on Mary My Hope, you years later you uh, reunited with Sven when he when he came to play bass um, in in the Black Crows. What went into that decision for you, and and how was it like playing with him again after so many years? It was a real easy decision for me. Um, you know, just in case anyone hasn't read the book, which I'm assuming they probably haven't. You know, I moved to Atlanta to start a band with some friends. Well, the film was Fred Pippian in 1987. And within six months, I had I had left that band to join Mr. Crow's Garden. They turned into the Black Crows. Well, 10 years after that, in 1997, the Black Crows bassist Johnny Colt quit. And and the first person that came to mind was Sven for me. And I hadn't played with him in 10 years. You know, it had been the summer of 87 to the summer of 97 before we were on the same stage or in the same room playing together. But I had followed him and I'd heard him play since and watched him develop as I developed and as the Black Crows went on their way. And it just, and, and the thing is, Sven knew the Robinson brothers even before I did. So it wasn't, you know, I, everybody knew what kind of player he was. And I had just run into him a few months earlier, literally walking our dogs in the park. We bumped into each other. So I had just seen him. He was doing really well. And when we had a conversation to discuss a new basis, it's the, I said, you know, I just saw Sven, and he looked great, and we, it was great to see him. And Rich and Chris both went, oh, my God, see, see if he's interested. Like, we, no one even hesitated. It wasn't just me. All three of us were like, yeah, that would be great. He's a great bassist. We all know him. And and it was that was as simple as anything has ever been. And I, I, was, I was crushed by having lost Johnny Colt. And getting Sven in the band gave me reason to think, okay, not all is lost. You know, I had both going out at the same time. I was, I was very upset to lose Johnny, and I was really relieved and happy to have Sven. It, you know, it, the 
the hiring of Sven seems like the the polar opposite of of when you had to to fire somebody like Jeff. Not only as a friend, but but as a bandmate, how do you approach something like that? Well, I know how the band did, you know, and it was in varying degrees of success or exhibits of humanity at times. Um, those things are never easy for me. We we lost we we let a lot of band members go. We let our bass player go right before we made our first album. And while I did, I thought that was the best decision. It was best for the band. It still broke my heart to do it. Um, I thought it was best for the Black Crows for Jeff to go. He didn't want to be there. In fact, Jeff quit. Is what you know. Jeff got a phone call telling him he was out of the band, and before that happened, he said, "Hey, I'm out. I'm leaving." You know, it was that was sort of the writing was on the wall from both sides. It still didn't make it easy for me. And part of that is, uh, you know, I'm just the kind of person where if somebody joins the band, I'm I'm on their team. You know, we're all in this together. I would would you know you'd have to work pretty hard to alienate me if we decide we're on the same team then it's go team you know and i'm for everybody succeeding so those things were always very always really difficult for me um even if i knew it was the right decision it, it sucked but in the case of uh you know hiring spend like you said yeah that was just you know every now and again things just fall right into place and that was certainly one of them you um you chose to um titled the book Hard to Handle after the Crows cover of Otis Redding, and yet in those early days, the, the biggest hit was um, Shake Your Moneymaker. Uh, I'm curious as to that decision and also what you think makes a signature song. Well, Shake Your Moneymaker was the name of the album. That, that right. wasn't a song title. Um, I, you know, it's funny, the publisher said... I think Hard to Handle is a great name for the book before I'd even written it. And I said, no, that's too obvious. It's just pandering in a sense. I didn't like it from the jump. Once I wrote the book, it made perfect sense. It just, obviously it's a tie-in to the first big hit single the Black Crows really had. For a lot of people, that's still the song that, that everyone heard first. It was our third single, but it was the first one to... to get as much radio play as it did beyond rock radio in the state. You know, that was the top 40 pop single for a few weeks. And, and it just resonated. And it's just a real, it, it, it's catchier and hookier from jump. So it certainly made sense. But just based on the tone of the book, once it was written, it, I just thought, well, yeah, it, it makes, it, it's, it's exactly what the book is. You know, it was a very difficult run. It was a you know, it's a story of a band that's, it's, it's the story of a band, but it's the story of people and, and dysfunction and addiction and codependency and, and love and hate and betrayal and loyalty and all of those things that, it's funny, I, I didn't think about this in these terms before it was released, but I've certainly gotten enough feedback that those themes are, you know, eminently relatable. I mean, I get a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life saying, oh, I totally picked up on this, and I, I, I got that very clearly. And on a simple level, anybody that's dealt with addiction in their life, either as the addict, but but if you're a family member of an addict, or if you've worked with an addict, or if you've been in love with an addict, um, there's a lot in this book that's, that's very relatable and very familiar. And I understand that uh, you weren't initially sure that that song was going to make it on the record because it is... Um... Uh, a, a cover song just on a general level what go what kind of decision goes into a band covering somebody else's music 
Well, in that decision, it was pretty simple. We were we were getting a you know we were just putting the album together, and our producer, the guy that signed us, his name is George Jaculius. He said we we were all listening. There was an Otis Running box set that had just come out that year, and we had been listening to it a lot. It was on all the time in the car or the van or wherever. And George said, "Hey, you know, why don't we do a cover just to have it in our back pocket, maybe for a B side." Maybe, you know, for the Japanese version, they add extra tracks, maybe a cool cover. And we all said, sure. And, you know, R.E.M. used to do that. The replacement, the bands that we liked, indie bands from the 80s, which is where we took all of our cues from, you know, we were very well-versed in how they operated. And that made sense to us. And George said, how about an Otis Redding song? And, and we were initially like, oh, I don't know about that, you know, and Chris especially, because it's a tough thing to look at a singer on his first album and say, why don't you try to cover an Otis Redding song? That's a giant ask of any singer to just tackle Otis. But Chris came around to it, and then he asked, I'm, I'm almost sure, no one really remembers, maybe Chris does, but it was I think it was Chris's idea who said, well, Hard to Handle would be cool. And then we couldn't, right away we were working it up, and we couldn't swing the way Booker T and the MGs could swing. We didn't have that, that laid-back shuffle at all. So we made it a rock song, you know, right away. We put an arrangement together, you know, within 20, 30 minutes, it was done. Like we were playing it straight through the way it was always going to be played. And then we went and recorded it and finished it. Now the band still didn't think this was even going to be on the album. We thought we would do an album of all original music. That was what the goal always was. George put it on the album as the producer. He said, this is going on the record. And I think George knew from the minute we recorded it, he said, man, this is a hit song. But we, we didn't think that way. We didn't know what made a hit song a hit song. We weren't listening to rock radio. We weren't listening. We weren't watching MTV. And when we did, we didn't like what we heard or saw. We didn't relate to those bands at all. So and nowhere in our mind are we thinking, like, we're going to have any hits, much less a hit of a, at that time, you know, 24-year-old R&B tune. It just didn't add up in our heads at all. But I think George always saw what that song could be. Have and you, so when it ended up on the track listing for the album, I, I personally was totally surprised. I thought, why is this going on the album? This should just be a B-side. And then we had a few months between the finish, you know, the album was done, and it wasn't released for six months. During that six months, I don't think I played the album for a single person who didn't light up as soon as Hard to Handle kicked in. I mean, everybody that I played the album for, when that started, they went, oh my God, that's amazing. And you know, after about the 12th time, you go... I guess we're onto something here. You know, it just shows how little I knew about what, what you know, jumped off the speakers and made people excited. Have Have you figured out now what what makes a hit song or, or hit record? No, I mean, there's there's an energy, there's an unexpected. You know, a lot of things are easy for a brand new band. There's no preconceived notions, and if the first thing you're hearing in the summer of '90 when it's all hair metal bands. If you hear that, you know, I think that, you know, starting with that drum beat the way it does, and it's just an instantly, it's, it, it just feels good, you know? It's just like a fun, it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's a, you know, it's funny, the Black Crows never wrote songs like that. You know, we covered a lot of songs like that, but we didn't write, you know, just feel good, half nonsensical lyrics. You know, we just, that, that wasn't Chris's forte as a lyricist at all, but he could sure sing it. I think it just, you know, if, if I understood the answer to that question in a really short, linear way, I'd be a producer, and I don't, and I'm not. Um, you know, early on in your career, you you had you toured with 
bands like ZZ Top, Aerosmith, uh, later Robert Plant. Out of all the years in, in, in the Black Crows, do you have one or two or one or two favorite memories that really stick out from touring? Oh, sure. Well, um, there's, there's, there's so many different ones for different reasons. There's a whole lot of the first time we ever did this, it meant something. There's a lot of doing it the second and third time even means more. But, I mean, generally speaking, we toured with um, Jimmy Page. We did a bunch of dates with him in 1990 and in 2000. And for me personally, those were the most fun shows ever. And, you know, it wasn't the same thing as 1990 when we had our first ever, you know, we'd play clubs in 90 and like they'd be packed and people sang every word and they wouldn't let us leave unless we gave an extra encore. Those are really exciting when that first starts to happen. So nothing to take the place of those kind of things. But when we toured with Page, to play Led Zeppelin songs with Jimmy Page and to do it just simply because he was having fun and we were having fun and hey, let's do this, it'll be great. It was a very organic, natural process. There was no plan behind it. We didn't plan to make a live album. We didn't plan to do a follow-up tour. It was just going to be six shows, and that was it. And just playing those songs, which had meant so much to me my whole life, and doing them with Jimmy and seeing people respond the way they did, and there was no pressure whatsoever. We weren't... It wasn't just the Black Crows who had a hard time getting along. I mean, in fact, I had... You know, when that tour was first proposed i called my manager to quit the band and he said i just put together some tour dates for jimmy page <laughs> you might want to rethink that and so it just all these elements just how unexpected it was you know from the jump the whole thing was a surprise the fact that it went so well was a surprise um that that's that's the highlight i mean all when you factor everything in you know people used to say it must be a dream come true i never thought to dream it so it was kind of even beyond that Speaking of Jimmy Page, the uh, the the in in two thousand, I read. Can, uh, I don't know if you can tell me this is true, but I read that you were one of the first bands to sort of use the internet in a marketing tool that that sort of ushered in the 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 era that we see today. Do you know if that's true at all? Well, yeah, the, the, we made an album called Live at the Greek, Jimmy Page and the Black yeah. Crows, and it was just an internet only. At first, it was not available in stores. The album was. You had to go to a website, and not only did you have to order it from the website, you could actually pick your own track listing. I think there was 25 songs, and you could just click all 25, or you could click just the ones you wanted, and whatever you ordered, that's the CD that would come to your house. And we were the first, that was the first project, um, at least that, 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 it, that did that, that where it succeeded. Somebody else might have done that before us, but it hadn't really worked. We sold a lot of records, and which which speaks purely to the power of Led Zeppelin more than anything else. Um, but that was the first record where something like that really did work. Uh, we we you touched on it briefly, but um, I know the the brothers did reunite this year for the for the thirtieth anniversary of of Shaker Money Maker. Um, they've got an all new lineup. Why didn't you decide to to join in this time? Was it ever a a, a discussion you had? Oh, no, no, they, they they didn't ask, they would not have asked. And, and it's funny, a lot of people say that the book is what destroyed that. It was long gone. Had they asked, I would have said no. I mean, the way the band ended in 2014 was such, a, such an absurd and embarrassing chapter. 
after, you know, a final salvo from Chris. Um, and like we talked about the self-destructive nature of musicians, you know, that had been, we'd all been putting ourselves in front of the train for so many years. And then he finally just had to kill this thing. You know, we had a farewell tour planned. We had an entire last chapter written and all we had to do was go execute it and everybody could have left with their head held high. And that's just not something he's able to do. And so he had to destroy it. You know, the control freak in him meant he had to do whatever he could to destroy it, or if not destroy it, at least get more. Because his demands were for the lion's share of the money after 27 years. And it's just, it's you know, people have made, you know, the Robinson Brothers came after my percentage in 1994. And I said, no, then. I said, no, I'll leave. You know, I'm not, I'm not, this is it. This is what we're a band, and, you know, I'm not taking less. I'll take nothing, if that's the case. So it had happened once before. I wasn't surprised by that. Um, there have been numerous examples where it was pretty obvious that individually and collectively, where money's concerned, they both think that they're worth more than anybody else. So the idea that he wanted more wasn't at all a surprise. The, the fact that he went so far with it and then said it was non-negotiable and it wasn't even a, it was just a petty, absurd thing to do. Um, all this to say, when that happened, when I read that email, I knew from reading that email, I'll never be in a room with this guy willingly again. I, I don't, I have no interest in spending one more second of my life with people like this. And I haven't, and I won't. Well, the, uh, the book is hard to handle. It's a fascinating look into the lives of the Black Crows and touring and, and being in the rock band uh, in, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Steve Gorman, thanks so much for your time this afternoon, man. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time. All right, man, you have a good day now. Yeah. Cheers. That was my conversation with former drummer of the Black Crows, Steve Gorman. My next guests are a hard rock band from Delta, B.C., which, for those not in Canada, is just outside of Vancouver. Over the course of their career, they have won three SOCAN Awards and one Juno, among five nominations. Their seventh album, Say Nothing, was released on January 31st. The record's lead single, History of Violence, addresses domestic abuse, while the second single, Strangers, talks about the polarization in today's society. This is my conversation with Theory of a Dead Man. I am here with Theory of a Dead Man. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Welcome back What's to Toronto. Up? How are you doing? I know I know it's been a, a busy day already for y'all. I think yeah. it's your time. <laughs> and we're done. Yes. Um, so, uh, your new album. Uh, say nothing. Um, I listened to a couple of the tracks, um, and people have been saying this. This is a little bit of a of, of a shift in, in in sound for you. Um, maybe, you know, perhaps a little bit later than what we're used to hearing from from theory. Um, what was it a conscious shift at all? Yeah. Uh, yes and no, I guess. Uh, you know, all bands change; they uh, they mature, but. Uh, um, it all started on the last record, actually. This this album is more of a continuation, I think, of the sound the pr progression. It feels gradual. Since yeah. Uh, our fifth record we had it was Savages, and it was probably our heaviest album we ever released. But we had songs like Angel and Blow, which are probably a couple of the most successful tracks. More well received. Well received, and I kind of I guess it kind of gave us some insight to what 
really our fans were really attracted to and, and liking. So our sixth record, we kind of just pushed that way. And I started playing piano a lot more and found some creativity in that rather than guitar riffs. And, uh, and then actually, to be honest, like the last couple records, especially this one, our, our seventh one, I think we are actually finally uh, a band in the sense where everybody has their own parts. Where right. I'll play piano, and that's it. Dave's a guitar player, so he plays guitar parts, and <laughs> yeah. that's it. Where before it was just like wall of guitar. Yeah, right. You know, and it was just like, uh, it, it, there's no really like distinct, like you always like look at bands like, you know, Zeppelin or even Chili Peppers or something where there's a distinctness to the sound of each person and character. To the, so that's, I think, what we've done on this record. This, uh, that's quite a long answer, but there you go. <laughs> uh, you know, you mentioned piano parts and guitar parts, and I know you all share writing credits uh, on all the songs. So how do, you, how do you go about constructing a song in terms of, Writing? Do you each write your own individual instrument and then and then put it all together? Every song is a little different, but mostly, I mean, a lot of the stuff's kind of written when we get in the studio, and then it's just hashing our parts out. And working with Martin Tereffi was so great because he's he's one of the few uh, producers that I feel like really doesn't get demoitis. He really he hears yeah. them and he's like, okay, that's cool. Now let's go and make remake this song here and try new things and do new things. And it's exciting. You just get in there and start watching him get excited. Mark Tereffi just jumps out of his seat. Oh, do that again, Joe, Joe, do that again. And so it's just like a lot of that stuff kind of happens now in the in the studio. But the songs are kind of crafted before we get in there. Uh, speaking of songs, I know that the new single uh, is History of Violence. Um, it's a very powerful song. What What made you want to tackle that subject matter? I'm not sure where it stemmed from, but I think um, with RX on the last album, dealing talking about the opioid crisis in America, I think it kind of helped. It made it easier to talk about other things. It was affecting uh, potentially our fan base, you know, women. We have a lot of uh, female fans. So it became easy that the chorus came first, and then I had to try to figure out what the heck I wanted to talk about. But there was a story of a woman, I can't remember her name, but uh, who was went to life prison for murdering her sex trafficker. And there was a bunch of uh, celebrities that advocated her for her release. And I guess she just got out of prison, and it was a similar story. I remember Dave bringing it up to me. He's like, is this, is this about that lady? I'm like, no. But I may have read it on the news, and it might have subconsciously yeah. crept into here. Yeah. You know, the, the the Me Too movement did hit the the music industry, even even here in Canada. Um, but how important is it, and in terms of the the, the dialogue, the, the the space for male voices uh, in the, in this movement and, and, and male male allyship how, how how important is that in terms of the the, the cultural conversation well i think the, the 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 problem starts with when we start to dividing people up into these subgroups we always had a problem with our music being divided we're a rock band well what kind <laughs> well, we're yeah. a post grunge so yeah. now that's now it's being people are being dissected into these whatever they're being identified as or like I like to try to think as everyone is just being human beings. Yeah. If we start there, maybe it's a lot easier, to, you know, rather than going like, "Well, I'm a, a white male, so what is my perspective, or how how do I fit in here?" I think that's the problem to be start with. 
Uh, and you also uh, have another song, um, Strangers, yeah, uh, which talks about the increasing uh, polarization, I guess you could mm -hmm. say, of yeah. opinions on the internet, sh sh shall, shall we say. Um, are we losing our, our nuance, do you think, in terms of our, the debates we have and in, in, in how we discuss and, and approach issues and have dialogue with people that we may disagree with? Well, there's no agreeing now when it's uh, when there's the line in the sand, right? It's uh, it's so funny because politics have created this like uh, this divide, but it actually has changed like humanity <laughs> and how they how they treat people treat each yeah. other. It's like, well, you're a human being. Wait, which side do you? What right. side are you on? Yeah, it's hard to donkey. And then it's like, oh well, then I can't befriend you. I actually hate your guts and yeah. everything you stand for. And it's you've just lost humanity because of this polarized political situation. Yeah, it's hard for people to put themselves in other people's shoes and see things from a different perspective. They only see their own and they can't understand any other way of thinking, I think. We've lost, we, we have a lack of empathy now because yeah. we uh, are allowed on, on the internet to have knee-jerk reactions. Right. So, so instead of sitting back and going, what would it be like to be in that person's shoes for a day? Man, that would really maybe terrible. Instead, it's like, I'm just going to spew out whatever I'm thinking right now onto Twitter, and then I'll apologize for it. Well, it was the same thing. I recently just was uh, online and saw somebody post something about Pearl Jam tickets, and they were like $1,500 Pearl Jam tickets. And the reaction was, what happened, Pearl Jam? I thought you used to care about ticket prices. And then you find out, you know, an hour later when somebody says, well, these are actually charity tickets, and the, t and the money goes to some charity, and Pearl Jam paid for those. And then you're like, oh, well, here I am just on the Oops. online slamming <laughs> Pearl Jam over their charity tickets because that's my knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. That's it's it. Like, that's, that's exactly the thing. Perfect example. You know, and on that note, do you find that is, – is art becoming more political, or do you think it has always been a very inherently political – Act or, or or form it flows. It's like ebb and ebb and flow with uh, with what's going on in the world. And as soon as like things get so nasty, you feel. I think you see more artists popping up because it's just like it's their everyday life too. It's affecting them so much. I feel like it's like this ebb and flow thing where you see like the politics of music go away sometimes, and then all of a sudden something happens. Somebody that is very divisive, like, like say Trump or something like that comes in and you've got people that are, you're, you're one side or you're the other. I love or hate. So it's like, I don't know where I was going. Lost. <laughs> well, yeah, because you think about like the, the Vietnam war, that was a huge one. Right. And, uh, and freedom of speech and music. And you think about all the, the hippies. Yeah. And the the activism. Ooh, yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, you're right. It does have flow. It, it, it's definitely, um, it's been political for a long time, but you know it's uh, it's tricky because a lot of people want celebrities and musicians to stay out of it. Right. Shut the hell. No one cares what you think. Just make music. So what we do is we just put it into our music. <laughs> Sneaky. <laughs> so you know, on that note, do you think is it better to be overt or 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 more subtle when you sort of have? Political songs or, or, or songs well, about this is where the topical issues. Where the say nothing comes in now. It's done. So we don't, you know, like I don't think we have to be so overt anymore. For us, it's like the materials out there, and now we're we're talking about it in situations like this. So it's like I don't think we need to be so overt. I think the message is out there, and now people are coming up to us and bringing out the conversation, right. which is we, really cool. Right. We uh, we started the conversation. Right. Yeah, because before we would have 
people will be like, well, what are we going to discuss? We're like, people are always trying to find talking points with us. Like, well, you know, is there anything about you guys that's interesting? We're like, not really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would do an interview and they'd be like, so where did the band name come from? We're like, yeah, here we go. You know, but now it's, Dave's right. Like, now we actually have a record that's worth talking about. We can sit here and talk all day about all these different It's life. It's real life. Yeah. Um, speaking of strangers, you chose to make uh, an animated music video uh, for it. Um, why, how, how did that, you think, fit with, with the song, that, that artistic choice? That's a label thing more. I think they do like these lyric videos now. That Now that the, the world has changed and uh, kids are absorbing things visually, I think even music they absorb visually. It's, it's so important now if you have any kind of content to have some kind of visualizer with it. So the label's been doing a lot of these sort of animated uh, lyric videos, make yeah. sure that... But I mean, I've I, we've really all liked the way these uh, lyric videos have been looking. Yeah, I think it makes a bigger impact. It, uh... It, it makes people think and gives them something to think about and, you know, sends that message even more to have it visual. You know, given the way that how we consume media has changed, um, and for a lot of people, music is a more of an auditory thing and unless you're seeing it live. How has that maybe, how, how, how have your live performance, do you think, uh, adapted to the new cultural consumption in a way if at all hmm. that's an interesting question i don't know that our show really has or that we've tried to adapt it necessarily mm -hmm. i know that everyone now is just recording the whole like yeah, everyone's like everybody's yeah sometimes people record yeah like, they have them here like this. the whole show <laughs> and, they watch, and then they just do this so you are conscious of it it does sometimes make it uncomfortable because you're like because uh, <laughs> sometimes you want to say i want to say something uh, you know, but uh, other than that, I, I don't know. I, it doesn't really affect the show because uh, we're, we're just performing our songs that we would have performed the same way, I, I, I think. Uh, I think one way it affects is now that everything's recorded that uh, maybe in the past before all this, we might have tried some of the new material live before the album had come out. But now that everybody's putting it on YouTube right away, we don't want that to be people's first impressions of right. the songs. It's just a video on YouTube. Right. So we can no longer, you know, try try these songs out live until the actual recorded version is out there. Does it make it harder then to have uh, rapport with the audience because people either have shorter attention spans or they're watching your show in a different way than perhaps their the device? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then I don't think so. I think still when you go to a rock show, everybody's engaged and connection you know, with the fans seems like that's part of our job too is to make sure people are engaged yeah. and yeah and i feel like the connection with the fans is tighter than it's ever been i mean they have more uh, access to us than they've ever had we have more access to them than we've ever had mm -hmm. i mean i get messages on my instagram if somebody's having a problem with the vip packages <laughs> right yeah you know, and i'm like sending some feedback. Manager, hey I have somebody's sending <laughs> messages saying they can't get the vip work you know so it's amazing the kind of access fans have to us and we have to them and uh, I think the trick is trying to some keep some mystique in, in still alive in in the process. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I, I try to say to the audience, it's, it's their show. We're just here in their town. We're visiting. They paid to come see us, so it's their show, not ours. I think sometimes bands kind of look at the opposite. Yeah. They come, they go, look, you came to see us. We're the big thing. 
know, I, I would kind of say opposite for us. For it's like it's their show, so you know, we try to perform a great show. And you know, we were saying the other day, like we we've been doing a few theaters on this tour, and there's um, sometimes you get out there and there's people standing up, and there's other people sitting down. And some people get upset. There's people standing up, and there's a couple older couple that are just sitting there watching, and you're like, well, they look like they're having a miserable time. Are we terrible? What is it? No, because they're having a great time. They're just not because they're not yeah. headbanging yeah. and getting drunk. Doesn't mean they're not having a great. So we just allow them to do, look. It's your show. You want to film? You want to sit down? You want to scream? There's people too. They're like ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I do you do whatever you want. It's your do what show. you want. You paid to be here. Yeah. Being a Canadian band, what's the most exciting thing about getting to? tour your home country as, as opposed to other places? Ketchup chips. <laughs> Tim Hortons coffee. Yeah. Uh, Wonder bars. <laughs> yeah, coffee crisp. Did I cover it all? <laughs> what are those, uh, what are the cheesies that are? Hawkins cheesies. Hawkins, Hawkins cheesies. cheesies. My God. I think, I think we all feel like a bit of a, a pride in the fact that we're a Canadian band and that we feel like we've found success outside of Canada as well. When we get to come back to Canada, it's, it feels like, I always feel like a sense of pride that we're back in our home country playing for our, you know, our, our home nation fans. Yeah. And, and knowing that we spend a lot more time touring the States and that we spend time touring Europe and the UK. I don't know, it's fun. It's fun to go back to Canada and play for our home country. We don't come here often. Yeah. I mean, you usually only do about one tour. Uh, a cycle. A record cycle, cycle yeah. So... You know, and uh, we get to see family and friends, which is uh, cool. We just did Joe's hometown, Winnipeg, and he, he had uh, half the city <laughs> out. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It had a big green room, and you know, it's uh, so you don't get to do that too much. You know, you mentioned Winnipeg, and I know you're you're heading out uh, to the Maritimes later, where it's still very very cold. Mm -hmm. um, how do you just? You know, how do you protect yourselves vocally or, or musically in, in, in that weather? Because har harsh conditions can affect yeah. the voice. Yeah. Whiskey. We hibernate. <laughs> hibernate on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> Whiskey. Leave. Yeah, and everyone's sick, too. So yeah. you just, unfortunately, you know, I, uh, I just bought this uh, little USB humidifier for my bunk in the bus. And it's great. It's awesome, and it's cold, too, because I never had one before, because I'm like, boy, that boiling water pours on me in the middle of the night. Yeah, oh, no. <laughs> so that helps. But yeah, it's super dry, but honestly, yeah. It's, it's a struggle good. sometimes. I mean, it's, especially touring across Canada in the winter, and you've got 11 guys on a tour bus, and one guy gets sick, and that's all it takes, touching doorknobs, touching your face, you know, so it's tough. But uh, we're all aware of it, and that's kind of the biggest thing. I understand that... Uh, you know, it's important to keep washing your hands or do, you know, just, I don't know, try to avoid the spread of germs. I'm not, yeah, there's only so, so much you can do. Uh, so I just prefer to get pickled yeah. and then uh, nothing yeah. gets in. Dave's body is so acidic that all viruses, like, die in any impact. <laughs> Maybe the CDC wants to study me. Probably. It's your superpower. We all have superpowers and Dave's is, is acid. It's interesting. Do you, do you consume apple cider vinegar? Because that's something people do when they get like the flu or something. No, but I will. I do, I do actually I do take it. Take yeah. my sweat and bottle it into apple cider vinegar bottles <laughs> yeah, for other people to take. Yeah. So are we going to see you know in the future theory of a dead man uh, sweat? You know. Yeah. There are. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 Season your favorite dish. 
Um, but before we wrap up here, uh, each of you, your, your, your favorite song off the new album. Rookie oh. Spinning. I'll probably say Ted Bundy. Ha <laughs> Me and Joe are like, wow, oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, mine is... Uh, the same? Mine is uh, Rookie Spinning as well. Strangers. Nah, I knew that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and finally, what is your favorite tour memory? Doesn't it have to be from this tour? Just Motley Crue, the Motley Crue tour. I think Motley Crue. Crew Fest tour was yeah. just fantastic in the summer. That was a great tour. I love uh, I loved Australia. Going to Australia yeah. was a great tour. Yeah. Memory. That was wicked too. Being there. I mean, I don't know that it, the shows were super memorable necessarily, but just you know, it was fun just going somewhere you haven't been and experiencing. Yeah. I'd probably say we did the Marine Base in Japan too. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Having like fighter jets flying overhead. Playing playing shows for some of the bravest people in the world. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Well, the new album is "Say Nothing." Yes, and we sure didn't. Favorite <laughs> <laughs> Edmund. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you, man. That was my conversation with Theory of a Dead Man. Their new album "Say Nothing" is out now. That does it for me today. Be sure to follow Endeavors on Facebook at facebook.com/endeavorsradio. I now have an Instagram, at Endeavors Radio. As always, the episodes will be posted to Anchor uh, and are available on Apple, Spotify, Google, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and I will be updating the Endeavors Media website very shortly. My thanks to Theory of a Dead Man and Steve Gorman. My guest on Sunday will be author Marcus Harwood-Jones. Thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next time. Bye for now. I just like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>